0: Good morning, you guys doing okay? Good? Good, all right. There's a couple people over here who are okay. You guys, everyone's good? I'll tell you a funny story. So last night, um, at least I thought it was funny, we'll see. Uh, Last night there was a young lady in Eon, Uh, her and her dad were talking to me over by the office and and, um, she goes, hey, my small group the other day met and we were meeting right up here at the front of the stage and we saw your mints there and so She goes, I'm just gonna go ahead and confess. I opened it up and we all started eating all your mints. And I was like, and I said, well, I'll confess. I usually open those up, dump the whole thing in my mouth, spit it back in there and then save them for later. And she's like, no, you don't. And I'm like, eh, you don't know. So it's kind of weird like that. Glad you guys are here this morning. So we have been, uh, been working through a book of the Bible that I bet I've read 12 times over the years, and I have never gotten really deep into it. And I've been both uh, surprised, sometimes kinda, when I say let down, when you get into the depths of some of this stuff, you're like, wow, it's not exactly how I thought this story was. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, I hope you've enjoyed Esther so far. Um, We just got done with chapter two. We're gonna do chapter three and four today. So we got a little bit of ground to cover. It's not gonna take us much longer. It's just, you, you can't really separate these two chapters, but let me catch up a little bit kind of where we are in the story. Chapter one, uh, we meet the king of Persia, King Xerxes, or as the Bible calls him, King Ahasuerus. We meet him. We find out he's having this massive party for six months, and then he has a second party for a week, and at the end of this party where he's kind of showing off how much he has and how much he's done, he summons his wife Vashti to come in and Basically, parade herself around and hey, show everyone how hot you are, so they'll be jealous of me. And, and she says no. And then we see that a decree is passed to get rid of the queen. More than likely, they killed the queen. They got rid of her, and um, and that's kind of what we learn about in chapter one. And then we get into chapter two. We meet Mordecai, uh, who is the adopted father of Esther. We meet Esther because the king's closest kind of helpers, his eunuchs, send out a a letter all over the Persian empire that they're gonna round up, basically, kidnap, steal, abduct all of the young virgins, the beautiful young virgins from around the empire, bring them up, get them as pretty and everything as they can, you know, this beautification process, just for the, the, the sake of sleeping with the king for a night, and then whichever woman or or young, they're girls, 13, 14, 15 years old, whatever girl that the king liked the most, he would choose as his new queen, and that was Esther. And then at the end of chapter two, we kind of get this weird little section that Mordecai, after Esther becomes queen, Mordecai, her adopted father, finds out that there is a conspiracy to kill Xerxes, the king of Persia. And he thwarts this conspiracy, and we kind of end chapter two with Mordecai saving the king's life, which is important as we get into the next couple of chapters. What well, we talked about last week, and, and I shared a, a kind of a personal story that I had with someone, um, we talked about as we, as we read about these things, because there was a lot of compromise, I feel like, in chapter two from our, from our two main protagonists, from Mordecai and from Esther, but, but we have to step back from that. And we have to to have empathy for these people because they were in some pretty tough situations. That doesn't mean we condone compromise or or not doing the right thing, but we can at least kind of understand a little bit about about why they made some of those choices. And so we we, we show grace and we show mercy, again, not condoning anything that's wrong. But what we talked about last week is, if we do not show empathy and grace and mercy to people, even those we disagree with, We will never build a bridge with them, therefore never have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus Christ who can save them and change them and reconcile them, okay? This week we're gonna talk about this because we we come to the most famous phrase in the book of Esther, the one that you have on a a piece of distressed wood in your kitchen, uh, for such a time as this, right? That Esther was alive and in the position she was in for such a time as this. And so... We're gonna talk about this phrase for a little bit because even though sometimes phrases like this can kind of be twisted and turned to mean things that they don't mean, um, there is quite an implication with this that you and I, this is what we're gonna talk about today, you and I are alive right now in this era, as messed up as it is, for such a time as this. And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit today and hopefully you'll leave here a little pumped up encouraged. You guys will go out, disciple eight or 10 people before next weekend. Um, it'll be really, really good, okay? All right, so you should have got a notes handout when you walked in, has everything I'm gonna say in there, everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, everything is on there, just click on sermon notes. If you have a Bible, one of these old school book things here, after the book of Nehemiah, before the book of Job, we have the book of Esther, okay? So I'm gonna pray, we'll dive into chapter three and four. I think you'll find it interesting. I, I, I found it very, very interesting and um, we'll kind of see where God takes us, okay? All right, Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you, God, for um, the opportunity for all of us to come in this morning to read your word and to study it, God, and we just pray that it's a blessing to us, Lord, that you keep your hand on this church, God, as as we break open the word and hopefully get closer to you, God, in our relationship and in our knowledge. Lord, we don't just pray for our church. We pray for every church in Murfreesboro, we pray for our other campuses. We pray for all the churches in those cities. We pray for the, the wonderful nonprofits that we work with, God, especially this month, that are working with um, kids who need foster care, Lord, and maybe kids who eventually need to be adopted. We thank you so much, God, that we can step in and hopefully fill that void. And we just pray, God, that as we study your word today, that everything we do today, that it honors you and brings you glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, picking up right after Mordecai just basically saved the king's life. Here we go. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadata the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all of the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman, that's a good word, to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus's kingdom. Now, right off the bat, we're going to talk about something interesting. So there is another jump in time here. More than likely about five years has passed between chapter two and chapter three. That's important because now we know that Esther is about 19 years old. She was 14 years old when she became queen, roughly. Now she's about 19, 20 years old, okay? Another important thing is at the end of chapter two, there's a lot of irony between chapter two and three At the end of chapter 2, we learn that Mordecai saves the king's life. Beginning of chapter 3, Mordecai's not getting a promotion. A guy named Haman is getting a promotion higher than everyone else under the king. Now, it was customary in in the Persian Empire that when someone's promoted or if someone was a superior above you, that you bowed. This was not a religious bowing. This is a respect thing. Like if you've ever done martial arts, I have a black belt in Taekwondo, and when your grandmaster walks in, you bow out of respect because they're a superior to you. There's nothing religious about that. Here's the other fun fact before we get into this next slide there is nothing religious about the Jewish community, about the Jewish faith, that said you couldn't bow to people in respect. So when Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, it was not a religious thing. This is another one of those mistakes that the movies make. Haman was, or or, I'm sorry, Mordecai was such a religious man that he would not bow down to Haman. That's not accurate. Mordecai should not have been in Susa in the first place. If you were here last week, it says in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra that the Jewish people were sent back to Jerusalem and the ones that didn't go were the ones that had gotten too comfortable in a pagan land. This was Mordecai's family. Not only that, Mordecai never told anyone he was a Jew. So more than likely, Mordecai didn't even celebrate the Jewish religious traditions like Passover and all the different feasts that, that, that the Jewish people did. So. If he was such a a, a faith-filled man, right, he didn't do any of the major things of the faith. But now when it comes to bowing down to Haman, he's like, I draw the line here. Why? Probably had nothing to do with religion. The first one is it mentions Haman was an Agagite, which basically there was racism between the Agagites and the Jews. They didn't like each other because of where they were from and their religious differences. So the first thing is, is we understand, he, he didn't bow down to him because he's like, I'm not bowing down to someone from that area, right, from those people. The other thing is this man was promoted when Mordecai should have been promoted. So we can assume pr- pretty confidently that he didn't bow down because of s- basically sour grapes, because of, of some pride, which let's have some grace. We've all done it, right? And so Haman was not only filled with rage, I like this word, he was repugnant. He, he thought that, that, that not only was he mad at Mordecai, he's like, well, I might as well just kill Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. I don't like any of them either. So Haman was so offended that someone disrespected, listen, Haman was so offended that he got disrespected, he, he was gonna do something irrational and hurt a lot of people because he got disrespected. And we sit back and we go, man, yeah, Haman was terrible. And then we hop on I-24 during the week, right? And, and we get cut off and we're like, I'm gonna run this guy into a concrete medium, right? That's the, that's the rational response to being late to work. And, and so we sometimes can get offended and act crazy. But the thing is, is Haman didn't know the true God and we do, right? So we have to make sure that we we keep our temper and we stay rational, even when people do things offensively to us. Mordecai, on the other hand, should have known better. It seems like Mordecai compromised on a lot of very major things, but when it came to this little small thing, right, he got very stubborn about it. Do we do this? Yes, yes. This is why Jesus looked at the religious people in the book of Matthew and said, you guys drink a camel, but you strain out a gnat. That's why Jesus said this. Sometimes you guys will will let go of all the big major things and you get focused on these little bitty small things, right? Like someone will come to church here and it doesn't matter that we teach the Bible and we give 30% of our income to nonprofits and you know, that we're growing and we're discipling people. Like some people come and they're just like, I don't like that new music. Even though the Bible says, sing unto the Lord a new song. Anyways, I don't like that new music. So I'm gonna go someplace else. It doesn't matter that they're making disciples and doing what the Lord wants them to do. It's not my preference. And so sometimes we let these little minor things, which quite frankly, guys, we need to just let go of, and and we miss the majors of our faith, okay? Next part. In the first month, the month of Nisan, see, you didn't even know cars were in the Bible, did you? In King Ahasuerus' 12th year, the purr, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. That was a bribe. The king removed his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadada the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you, do as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors, Each of their provinces and the officials of each ethnic group and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in their own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued a law throughout every province, was distributed to all the people so that they may get ready for the day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. Look at this, I highlighted this. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. I find that last part really interesting. We'll talk about it here in a second. So like I said, about five years has passed from chapter two to chapter three. Esther's about 19, and that'll really come into play here in a second. So what happens during this time is the high-ranking officials in the Persian empire literally rolled dice to see what day they would annihilate an entire group of people. And so after they finally pick a day, Haman goes up to King Xerxes and he gives him a bunch of half-truths. If you go back and read it, he doesn't even tell him that it's the Jews he's talking about. He says, hey, there's this group of people and they don't follow any of your laws and we better get rid of them, right? Because it's gonna be trouble if we don't get rid of them. And then the king, because all the king is thinking about is himself, he goes, okay, yeah, get rid of them and so here's the thing this is a fun little historical fact for you guys the persian empire actually celebrated diversity they loved that there was people of different skin colors different nationalities different languages they even loved the fact that there were different religious affiliations in the persian empire they were fine with that the reason why the persians loved diversity is it was kind of bragging on how many people they had conquered Look, we conquered those people of that skin color. We conquered that religious group. We conquered that country. And so they celebrated this diversity. The Roman Empire was exactly the same way. This is called plurality, plur- pluralism, a pluralistic society, a society that is made up of multiple different faiths or non faith right? The Roman Empire was exactly the same way. They, they were totally fine. The Roman Empire was totally fine, even with Christianity, until... Christian doctrine started contradicting cultural ideology. Listen, let me tell you what that means, because you're seeing history repeat itself in the United States right here in 2022. Americans and American culture is 100% fine with you calling yourself a Christian as long as nothing in this book contradicts what culture says we have to affirm. Do you hear me this morning? Everyone is fine with your Jesus, as long as you don't bring up the scripture about sin, about hell, about what is right and wrong, about consequence, right? As long as you don't bring those things up, you're fine to believe what you believe. But whenever your beliefs contradict my cultural ideology, then we must get rid of you. This is why the Romans persecuted the Christians. This is why the Babylonians persecuted the people of God. This is why the Persians persecuted the people of God. Listen, history repeats itself over and over and over again. And in the United States, Christians in the United States have their heads so deep in the sand. We're like, well, we're going to take back our culture. You're not. You're not going to. You've never had it in the first place. This is history. And the the, the truth is this, Right? We will always be aliens, we will always be foreigners in a society that doesn't agree with what we do. This has always been the case, it will always be the case, until Christ splits the sky and comes back for humanity. It has always been this way. So the question isn't, will we take over culture and be the cool thing to do, you're not, right? Just because jars of clay got a Grammy once upon a time doesn't mean that everyone is coming over to our side. <laughs> it's the truth. We're, we're doing it. We're, no, we're not. So the question is this. How do we live as foreigners? The Bible calls us migrants, aliens, foreigners in a foreign land. How do we live as good citizens in a pluralistic society that doesn't agree with what we do? And we are called to do this. Christians hate 1 Peter chapter 2 and they hate Romans chapter 13. And I'll tell you why. Peter says in 1 Peter, honor the emperor. This is the same emperor that killed him. Doesn't mean you agree with the emperor, but you honor the emperor. It's in the Bible. And then Paul wrote it in Romans chapter 13. Honor the governing authority. Doesn't mean you agree with them, but you honor them. We are called to live as good citizens without, without, without compromising our biblical integrity. And though that is one really hard balance to find, we are honored in eternity for living as good citizens without compromising our faith. That's what we are called to do. So Haman comes in, <laughs> tells a bunch of half truths, and brings 375 tons of silver. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds like a lot to me. Brings that in, and he bribes the king, and so they pass a law that on this day, the 13th day of the 12th month, they're going to annihilate every man, woman, and child all over the known world if they are Jewish. Imagine if you were a Jew what it would feel like to see this. On this day, you're gonna die, and your whole family's gonna die. Now, (laughs) bear with me here as I get a little cynical. So the destructive, dirty, ugly work was done. People are going to die in the streets. And what does the elite do in the government? They sit back and have a cocktail. I'm gonna tell you, governments haven't changed much. And you can take that however you wanna take it. There has always been people who have suppressed other people for their gain. There have always been people who have passed laws and edicts and things that have hurt a lot of other people and then they sit back in the lap of luxury that quite frankly we pay for and they have a cocktail with their buddies. This is why your hope can never be in an empire. Do you hear me? And I know everyone says, we hear you and then 2024 is gonna roll around and people are gonna lose their ever loving minds. They're gonna go crazy and their Christian ideology is gonna go right out the window because a lot of people who claim that they follow God more than anything put way too much stock in the American government. There has never been an empire that has saved people. There has never been an empire that has stood the test of time and that will include the empire that we live in right now. And listen, I'm not a communist. I don't hate the United States. There's nowhere else I'd rather live. What I'm saying is there is one kingdom that you can put your stock into and it's not a kingdom on earth. It is the kingdom of God. Any other way, and I promise you, you will be let down. You will be let down, okay? All right. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, they wept, they lamented and lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he didn't accept them. Esther summoned Hatak, one of uh, the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money that Haman promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hattach might show it to Esther, explain it to her and command her to approach the king, implore his favor and plead with him personally for her people. Hattach came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther." So you can imagine, right? That all this chaos was happening when the Jewish people found out what was gonna happen. So the reason why we have to do chapter three and chapter four together is they, they, they kind of contrast each other. Chapter three, we learn a lot about Haman and what kind of an individual he is. In chapter four, we're gonna hear about Mordecai and we're gonna learn, we're really gonna see Esther come into who she is. So when Mordecai heard the word about what's gonna happen to his people, he ripped his clothes, which was Jewish tradition to show mourning, put ash on his head, wore sackcloth, again, all within Jewish tradition, and yelled and cried bitterly in the street. And this was happening all over the Persian Empire, wherever people were getting this letter. And then when Esther got the news that Mordecai was was mourning like this, she got scared. She didn't know what was happening yet, but she knew that her adopted father was out tearing his clothes in the street, ashes, he's upset. So she got some new clothes for him, sent out one of her servants out there to to just make sure he did it was okay, and he rejected the clothes. Why did he reject the clothes? He probably rejected the clothes because he assumed that Esther knew what was happening, but assumed that Esther wasn't taking it seriously. Well, she's in the palace. She thinks she's going to escape it. She doesn't even care for her people, right? But Esther didn't know any details, She just knew that he was upset. So she's innocent. And so one of Esther's servants goes out to Mordecai and says, what's bothering you so much? What what is going on? And Mordecai tells him. And then Mordecai commands Esther through through her servant to approach the king, which we're gonna find out later is gonna get her, could, could get her killed, and implore his favor and plead with the king for her people, let me pause there for a second. This young lady has been told her entire life to never tell anyone who her people are. And now that Mordecai and his people are in trouble, Esther, these are your people. You have to step in and help these people. So it's gonna sound like I'm really beating up on Mordecai this morning, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to, to, to understand the text. So Mordecai is a man who shouldn't have been in this area in the first place, He should have been in Jerusalem building back the temple in the city. This is a man who willingly hid his faith and his heritage and and his lineage. And this is a man that told his, his adopted daughter to do the same. But now when he is in hot water, I'm a Jew. Help me, I'm a Jew, God. Where are you, God? And now he implores for God's help, which brings me back to us. How often do we suppress our faith and never talk to God until we get into some deep water? Everyone's awake this morning, correct? How many of us in this room only call on the Lord when we get caught? How many of us in this room, including myself, I've done this, we only call on Jesus when, when we can't pay the bills? I can't tell you how many times over the years, men come into this church and their wife has been trying to drag them to church for a decade, but they'd rather watch football and they'd rather hang out with the boys and they'd rather look at things that they shouldn't look at. And then when their wife finally leaves, then they come to church and they say, Corey, fix it, fix it right now, God fix it. And by the grace of God, it gets fixed and their marriage gets back together. And then next football season rolls around. And you see men slide right back into the same pattern. Women do things like this too, but I bet I have seen that scenario with men 500 times over the years. I have seen it so many times. And so the question is, are we worshiping Santa Claus or are we worshiping Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe? And if we're worshiping Jesus, worshiping Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, you need to have a relationship with him. He's not your, 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 you know, your whipping boy to call whenever you get into a deep situation. Here's the other thing. We often put ourselves in the hot water and then we say, God, help me. And God's like, man, you got yourself into this. But because of God's grace and mercy, if we will humble ourselves, he does help us. And that's what we're gonna see in the next part. This is where I kind of fall in love with Esther, this part right here. Esther spoke to Hattach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, uh, inner courtyard, and who has not been summoned the death penalty. Unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. Listen to this I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position Dun, 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 for such a time as this. <laughs> Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king even if it's against the law. If I perish... I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. So Esther tells her assistant to go back and remind Mordecai the dangers of just walking up and talking to the king. At this point, this is interesting. At this point, the queen hadn't even seen the king for a month. She hadn't been summoned by her husband for a month. The reason stuff like this is important, whenever you see the Lifetime movies and the different things where they make it look like Esther and Xerxes had this beautiful romantic relationship, that is completely not biblical. We see five years after they got married, now she's too old for for Xerxes. Xerxes likes the really, really young girls. She's 19 or 20 at this point, so she has not been summoned for casual sex for a month, which means that he's summoning other young girls to be with him instead. This was no loving relationship. This is a woman who couldn't even go talk to her husband without fear of being killed, right? This was not a loving relationship. This is important because what we see is this. It was not Esther's relationship with Xerxes that will save the Jewish people. It is a miraculous work of God that will save the Jewish people. That's why reading the text like this is important. This is not because Esther was just really good with people and she was attractive and the king just loved her a lot. This was God miraculously working through this 19-year-old girl. Now, some commentaries, if you read it, and again, it sounds like I'm beating up on Mordecai today. Some, Mordecai, uh, some, some doc, uh, commentaries say that Mordecai tore his clothes and was yelling in the street because he was trying to, 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 to let someone see him and have pity on him and hopefully stop this edict. He's trying to fix the situation, right, on his own. He also, I don't know if you guys feel like this when you read this. I feel like this when I read this. I feel like he's a little manipulative with Esther too when he talks to her. Uh, Don't think you're gonna escape death, which in actuality, she probably would have escaped death. Um, She could have denied her heritage. She could have, you know, she was very attractive. Like she probably would have been fine. But he says, don't think you're you're, you're gonna avoid death. We'll get saved somehow, but you're gonna die. That seems a little manipulative. So he uses some fear tactics to put this pressure on Esther. So Mordecai is trying to fix it himself somehow, some way, he's desperate. And this is a subtle reminder, as we're gonna see with Esther, that we can be vessels for God to do something, and there is responsibility on our part. But ultimately, the the, the resolution of situations is in the hands of God. We have to depend on God to fix things, to resolve things, to reconcile things. We have to lean on him. Our hope has to come from God and not what we can do. So now we come to the famous phrase, right? And there's two parts of this that we need to talk about. The first one is how this is a phrase that can be taken way out of context. And we see this a lot in the Bible. People take things like Philippians chapter four, right? I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength and they get it tattooed on them and they're shooting a free throw and they're like, man, I made that because I can do everything through Christ that gives me strength and that has absolutely nothing to do with what the scripture is talking about. That scripture, if you read the whole chapter, is talking about persecution. You can be persecuted and beat and killed, right? But maintain your faith because of Christ that gives you strength. That's what that means and we take it way out of context. We do it with things like this too. Sometimes we get ourselves in awful situations because of bad choices or sin or rebellion to God. And then we call out to God and we're like, God, for such a time as this. And that's kind of twisting things and taking it way out of context. What this phrase shows us though is even when we are the ones that get ourselves into the hot water, if we will be humble, if we will lean on God, if we will pray, if we will fast, if we will depend on him, Yes, he knows in his sovereignty that you are going to be alive for such a time as this. And in his grace and in his mercy and in his provision, he will take you in that situation and he will get you through. And it will be for his glory, right? For his honor, for his kingdom. So it does work on that level. It also works on the level that we, we often take it as. So it reminds us that all of us are alive at a certain time and place for a reason. It is so easy right now. Listen, it is so easy right now, as crazy as our culture is, and I have a 13-year-old daughter that's beautiful, I have a 10-year-old daughter that's beautiful, and it is very tempting right now to gather your family, to go you know, sell your house and take your, your, your equity in your house and move to some place in mid-America and disappear from society, and it's so tempting to, to retreat, but listen, you have breath in your lungs and blood in your veins right now, not so we can retreat from the darkness of the world, but so we can go bring the light to the darkness of the world. Listen to me. You're alive right now in what may be one of the most godless societies to ever exist. You're alive right now, as Jesus said, to go out like the sheep among the wolves, not to be afraid of the wolves because fear is not a product of God. We're not called to retreat. We're called to be the salt. We're called to be the light. We're called to be obedient vessels to God for such a time as 2022 in the United States. And right. Christianity right now in the United States is at is, is an Esther crossroads. We can either play it safe and we can bury our head in the sand and say we're one nation under God, That's true, but it's not the God you're thinking of. I'll give you an example, because again, some new person's gonna be like, man, this guy, like, is he from Russia or what? What's up with him? Anyways, I do speak some Russian, by the way. (laughs) Я говорю, русский очень плохо. Anyways, so um, fun fact that you can take with you today. The other day I was listening to the news and there was a school system, I can't remember, uh, it might've been in Texas or something like that, where they just passed a law where they are not going to remove In God We Trust from the public schools. And everyone's like, yes, but all the signs now are going to say In God We Trust in English, in Arabic, in rainbow letters, and all these other different things, because God can encompass anything, including us. And so we all follow a God. It's just most of us not the true God. So we're all going to face adversity. And this is where we have to step in, Right? This is where we have to kind of pull up our bootstraps and and rely on God because we have to not not only honor him, but our choices affect other people. So what does Esther do, right? She could have played it safe, but she didn't. She says, go tell Mordecai to get all the Jews together and to pray and fast for me for three days because I'm gonna go talk to the king. Even if it could kill her, 19-year-old girl, man, 19-year-old girl. She says, I'll go, I'll, I'll do it. And this is when Esther becomes the Esther that we're still talking about 2,500 years later. This is when she steps into her leadership role. She leans on God through prayer. She leans on God through fasting, and she's willing to put her life on the line, right, to do what is morally right. And that's when Esther becomes Esther. Esther. So let's step back and let's pull out some of these things we've talked about today and let's apply them to kind of 21st century Christian, you know, us right now. The first thing is this. I beat up on Mordecai a lot today, but we can all do these things. Similar to Mordecai, we have a tendency to neglect major things and we get hung up on minor things. The way we determine what is a major at this church is if you have to do it to go to heaven. That's a major. If it's something that is not detrimental to you going to heaven, that's a minor. We'll still talk about that, but it's not as important as these other things. Again, this is why Jesus said, you'll drink a camel, but you'll strain out a gnat. That was Jesus's very sarcastic response of saying, you guys focus on the small stuff when you need to be focusing on the bigger stuff. So let me ask us today, are we able to let the small stuff go? Or... Let's soak on this one for a second. Does our pride, our politics, or our preferences cloud our identity as Christians? Let's just stew on it for a second. Let's just marinate in the phrase, does our pride, our politics, and our preference usually step over what the Bible tells us to do? Here's another thing. Are we offended too easily as Christians? I'll answer that for you. Yes. You know what a lot of Christians do? They get so offended that non Christians don't act like Jesus. <laughs> you guys are with me this morning, right? I feel like you guys are like, man, I do not like this guy at all. It's okay, it's okay. But oftentimes as Christians, we sit back and we look at a world that doesn't know Jesus and we go, we are going to retreat. I don't like these people. I'm not going to spend any time with these people because they're offensive to me because they don't think like me. Here's the thing. They don't know what you know. So you know what the Bible says? The Bible doesn't say to avoid people who don't think like you and believe like you because the only way they're going to think like you or believe like you is if you actually engage them and build a relationship and share the truth with them. And then their behavior will change once they know God. What the Bible actually tells us to do in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, is not that we're to avoid non-believers because that's what we're supposed to be building relationships with. Paul says, don't hang out with people who claim to be believers but act like non-believers. How many of those people do you know? The Bible says you shouldn't even eat dinner with those people. (laughs) Let's keep going, right? Isn't this fun? (laughs) So you and I live in what's called a pluralistic society which means there's all kinds of beliefs. And in America, the, the, the fastest growing group of people are non-believers, atheists. How are you and I balancing being good citizens in our society while not compromising our, our biblical integrity and our faith in God? Are we paying our taxes? Are we being good you know, civilians? Are we not littering? Are we being nice to people? Are we, are we working hard? Are we being good citizens? without compromising our biblical integrity. And then that leads to another question. Do we put too much hope in earthly institutions? Do we put too much hope in earthly institutions? Not just government, man, entertainment, school systems, whatever the case may be. Do we put too much hope in these things that the Bible says are are gonna pass away? And all we have to do is go back and look at human history and every empire has has always passed away none of them have lasted an extremely long amount of time. They all come and go, right? Just like ours will. So we need to be careful where we ultimately place our hope and we have to balance that. Let me ask you this, like Mordecai, do we live by our dreams, our direction, our desires, our aspirations, and do we only consult God when it benefits us? Do, 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 we, do we only pray when, when the electric bill comes up and we don't have enough money in the bank account? Do we only break open our Bible when our wife is walking out the door and we just need to find that silver bullet really quick to save it? Do we only pray for God when we need this and that and that promotion comes up or that vacation comes, whatever? Do we only consult God when, when we benefit from it? Or do we actually have a relationship with him, Right? Do we only feel remorse when we get caught? Do, do we only feel bad about sin when it hurts us? Do we understand that if we treat God like this, that's not a relationship? That's not how relationships work. Do we understand that that's just, that, that's very disrespectful and dishonoring? to treat God in this manner, to only talk to him. Guys, I'm not trying to be crass. It's like if if your your wife only talks to you when she she wants to be intimate. She doesn't wanna go eat with you. She doesn't wanna hang out with you. She doesn't care to know anything about you. She just wants to feel good for a second. Make me feel good for a second. You'd be so offended and hurt by that, but that's how we treat God. We tend to treat God almost like a prostitute. Come on, God. That is the creator. That is the one that spoke the universe into existence. How dare us, right? Treat the creator in such a disrespectful manner, but we do it. I've done it. We do this. Now, let me leave you with some encouragement because you guys are like, please, Corey, leave us with some (laughs) encouragement. I'm gonna leave you with the biggest encouragement. You are not here by mistake not just in this room, you are not alive right now by mistake. You are of tremendous value to God, all of you. You are of tremendous value to God. You all have a purpose. You all have a mission. And that might look differently to different people in this room. Someone's mission may be to write a book or to start a church or to do something or whatever, that might be theirs. Someone else's mission just may be to be the best mom that they can possibly be to their children. Your mission may be to touch base with that neighbor across the street who may be on the edge. You are here for such a time as now. Like I said, it is, I have two beautiful girls that go to public schools And it is terrifying sometimes to to release your children out into the world. Listen, that's why I pray for my daughter's principals and teachers in school every single night. Man, every single night without fail we pray because those institutions are gonna have my kids more that day than almost I will. So I pray for them and I pray God's hand in there and for protection I don't need to cower away and and, and pull my kids out of everything and and keep them covered up in a bubble. I need to insulate them by the power of the Holy Spirit and let my daughters go out and share with their friends the gospel. Because any of you in this room whose kids go to public schools, my oldest daughter will tell you maybe a quarter of her friends believe in God. A quarter in middle school. And she's probably over-exaggerating that. There's probably not even that many so, but here's the thing. And listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat you up if you don't do things the way I do things. But, but there were times when I'm very scared to put my daughter into those situations. But then I think, if my daughter doesn't bring the light, who does? My daughter is alive for such a time as this. Your kids are alive for such a time as this. You are alive in this crazy, whacked out, backwards, perverse, Generation, you're here right now. As Jesus said, to go out like sheep among the wolves. Like Jesus said, hold on, in Matthew chapter five, he said, you are the light of the world. When Jesus told that to the people sitting on that hillside, they were in the thralls of the Roman Empire. A godless, evil society. And Jesus didn't say, hey, go build a commune and don't talk to anybody. He said, No, 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 no. You're the light of the world. Go. You know what he said? He said, You're the salt of the earth. And if the salt is not present, society loses its flavor. That's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5. That you were born, you are alive, you are present right now. Not to squander your life and be selfish, but to live your life on purpose, to have intentionality, to live with integrity. To live selflessly. Why? Because God has a mission for you. He values you. And he has a job for you. For such a time as this. The only way that is possible though is it's the fundamentals that we talk about every single weekend in this church. You have to be praying. When I say you have to be praying, I'm going to take it up a notch this weekend. I usually say you have to pray every day. You need to pray several times a day. You need to pray on your way to work. Right? Some of you are like, yes, God, I need to pray on my way to work. You need to pray on your way to work? You need to pray at night with your kids and your family? You need to periodically pray in those moments in school or in between classes or you know, on your lunch break? You need to touch base with God a lot. Why? Because it's dark out there. It's dark out there. But we're not called to run from it. We're called to be insulated by the Holy Spirit. You know what the Bible says? You are in the world, we're just not of it. We're not made of the same substance, but we're in it. There's no avoiding it, right? We pray, not only do we pray, we're called to fast. This church will do a 40-day fast at the beginning of the year. It's tough, right? If you do it, you'll probably mess up a couple of days. It's it's okay. But last year we had, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 people or something do a fast. And I've never had anyone go through that 40-day fast and email me and be like, man, I really regret it. I'll get literally dozens of emails saying, it changed my life, changed my family, changed my neighborhood. It it has been so groundbreaking for us. So Jesus said, some things only happen when you pray and you fast. So we gotta do that too. We need the word of God. You need to be reading the word of God. The word of God sets us on on the right direction. It brings us truth, it helps us not waver in the middle of all this confusion and distraction. You need the word of God. And then the last thing is, we have to be willing to sacrifice it all, not for my kingdom, but for the kingdom of God. I have to be willing to lay down my popularity, I have to be willing to lay down my job, I have to be willing to lay down maybe even my life for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Man, I love what Esther said, a 19 year old kid, man. How many 19, 20, 25, 35 year olds nowadays are like, oh, I'm just trying to figure it out. 19 year old girl says, If I die, I die. That's pretty awesome. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room and maybe you're a new believer and you have questions or maybe you are not a believer in this room and you're searching, you're digging, you're looking, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Savut is up here. He's at the corner of the stage, Okay. We are not afraid of questions, we welcome questions. If you have any questions, please come up here and talk to Savu, all right? We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything at all, for you, for a family member, it doesn't matter what the situation, let someone pray with you. The last thing is this, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, and then if you're sitting in the middle on those posts in the middle, so you can skip the lines, there's communion all the way around this room. Communion is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus. Everyone is welcome to take that if you've asked God to forgive you of your sins. Let me tell you the two reasons why we do communion all the time. The first reason is just to remember the grace of God and that he loves us and he died for our sins. That's the first thing, most obvious thing. The second one is this. The Lord Jesus Christ knew the era in which you would live in. He knew the situations you would be in and you're alive for such a time as this. And it is because God sent his son to die and to resurrect that we now have access to the spirit of God. Can we do it alone? No, but you have access to the Holy Spirit of God. It can fill you and it can empower you and equip you. So we can go out, the Bible says, and tread on serpents. That we can go out like sheep among wolves. That we can go out and be the light in the darkness. That we can go out and be the salt to a flavorless society. That is your call. That is your call. And by the grace of God, we can do it we can be the moms we're supposed to be we can be the dads we're supposed to be we can be the husbands and wives we're supposed to be we can be the students we're supposed to be we can be the co-workers that we're supposed to be and people's lives can be changed because god can work through us father lord we love you god i love this church i love this church i'm so honored god to, to be a part of it and i'm so honored to be up here sharing your word god thank you I pray, Lord, that for everyone in this room that can hear me, God, that you would bless them. Protect them physically, protect them spiritually, protect them mentally, God. Let everyone in this room know that they are valued, that you see them, you hear him, you, you hear them, that you you know where they are, God, and the situation they're in. And they are alive right now for such a time as this. Empower us, God, equip us. Help us to go out and not be afraid of the world, Lord but to engage the world in the hopes that people will change. We love you, Father. Keep your hand on us until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.